Robin Thurgood was a quiet, good kid. In fact, when asked directly which adjectives they would use to describe him, 93% on staff chose those very words. When the other 7% were questioned, they claimed they were either asleep, too busy, or said they had been advised by the lawyers from amalgamated summer camps of America to claim that they were either asleep or too busy and to not answer any questions about anything. But Robin Thurgood was a quiet, good kid, and as with many quiet, good children, his existence left little to no impact on anyone. Now, it should be noted that Robin's parents did not give permission for this story and are most likely unaware it's being told. Several attempts have been made to reach them, but cell reception in the Yukon Territory is notoriously crappy, and there is serious reason to doubt that the phone number on file is actually correct. As Gil Herman, during his short stint as Camp Director Benjamin Green's receptionist, uses a base four number system. Gil's unwillingness to count past four was one of the reasons he only lasted a week in the job, and why Camp Director Benjamin Green eliminated the role of Camp HQ receptionist and purchased an answering machine that he named Stephen Sherman instead. Needless to say that Camp Director Benjamin Green is not happy that Robin's story is being told. His first request was that its telling be scrapped entirely, and instead that the story focus on the fun and learning being had in the Handicrafts Lodge. He even suggested a headline for the piece, A moderately enjoyable time had by most. When it was made clear to Camp Director Green that the story would be told and that there was nothing he could do about it, he requested that, at the very least, the camper's real name not be used. The camp director then asked again that the story be scrapped. Then he tried to use bribery by offering his entire set of red, 23-carat gold-plated Burger King Pokemon cards, which, while able to fetch a surprising amount on eBay, really just made everyone feel sad for the camp director, as he undoubtedly believed they would be worth so much more. At the request of Camp Director Green and the gaggle of lawyers from Amalgamated Summer Camps of America that attacked a producer in the back of a Cracker Barrel General store one evening, it should here be noted that Robin Thurgood is not the name of the lost camper. And that this is Bug Spray. For several hours in June of 2013, it was not unreasonable to suspect that Robin Thurgood, an eight-year-old from the Peter Tamarkin cabin, was possibly dead. And if not dead, at least in a coma that he would never wake up from. It was actually Major Henry Warrington who first realized something was amiss, but he didn't say anything because he wasn't sure if said thing was amiss because of him. He had learned long ago to never acknowledge anything out of the ordinary, as much more often than not the extraordinary was his doing and that he had simply forgotten what it was he had done. The Major's short-term memory had always been bad, but in recent years had deteriorated to the point that he really couldn't remember anything, and would routinely come to the wonderful conclusion that even the smallest bit of serendipity in his life was his doing, and that he was, if not a god, at least magical as fuck. Several minutes later, he realized that something was indeed amiss, and that thing was a camper, a camper named Grumman. 
Now, Grumman is not the camper's real name, but it is what Major Henry Warrington called the young child who was missing, who also wasn't named Robin Thurgood. True to form, unsure of his involvement in Grumman's disappearance, the Major remained silent. He speculated that, on the off chance that Grumman happened to be alive, he was probably having more fun than allowed for in the phrase nature hike, which is defined by Dr. Lester's Dictionary of Camp Terms as a slow, horizontal leg movement-based activity in which participants move about in an area that contains items including, but not limited to, trees, bugs, turtles, birds, and rock monsters, and in which participants are expected to generally take note of the aforementioned items around them. The Major said nothing of Grumman's absence because Grumman was a member of an extremely select group of campers, whose continued existence did not actively offend the Major. And while to say that the Major was rooting for Grumman would be heartily disingenuous, it is true that the Major did not wish Grumman any harm. The second person to become aware of Grumman's absence was Packard, who was Grumman's safety buddy on the nature hike. His main focus was to find salamanders and tortoises and rock monsters, although to be honest he wasn't entirely clear on what a rock monster was, and to put them in a terrarium he was making, but wasn't all that confident about. Packard knew that, like most things he had attempted to do in his life of eight years, the terrarium would probably fail, and everything he was collecting for it would die. When he was five years old, he had briefly become obsessed with death after learning of his existence from the back of a Blue Jay Morio's cereal box. His parents were understandably bothered and took him to a psychologist, who after two brief sessions proclaimed Packard to be cured, and then immediately closed up his practice and has not been heard from since. Although it seemed to work, for Packard stopped mentioning death and moved on to other, more mundane obsessions like Walter Mondale and Lewis Black, and seemed much happier. Packard, like the Major, appreciated Grumman's silence, and would routinely remark in the letters he would write home to his parents each Bryce day what a great listener Grumman was. Packard could talk for hours about anything, and while other children would be frustrated, being unable to get a word in edgewise, Grumman would just nod and smile. It would later be revealed that Grumman just liked that there was someone talking to him, and that he would not eventually be tested on what they were saying. It is therefore of little surprise that, a good 46 minutes after Major Henry Warrington realized Grumman was missing, Packard noticed it too, which put him squarely in the middle of Dr. Stephen Lester's attention scale to things other than self. Packard alerted the authorities, in this case Major Henry Warrington, and then moved on with his life, with full confidence that, as Camp Director Benjamin Green had said that time the group of cockroaches had taken over camp and attempted to declare autonomy from the rest of the United States, don't worry. The adults are now in charge. We'll take it from here. Major Henry Warrington heard the alert, nodded at the young child, and still didn't do anything. Robin Thurgood had been missing for two hours and three minutes when his general lack of presence came to the attention of camp chef Stephanie Lee, who, unlike Major Warrington, had an excellent memory and little faith in the universe. It was lunchtime and the Terran Noah Smith Memorial Dining Hall was packed with hungry, sunburnt children, and Camp Chef Lee discovered Robin's lack of presence by accident, which is to say it's not as if she had been taking a roll call. And while no one had ever asked her to, she had nonetheless come up with a quite convincing argument should she ever be required to actively account for the camper's whereabouts. The argument was, put simply, that if calling roll became one of her responsibilities, she would quit. Sure, she liked Camp Fletcher and most of the campers and staff, 
but could undoubtedly, if motivated, get what many New York Times op-ed columnists have routinely called a better job. Her 10-year high school reunion was coming up, and it sure would be nice to have an answer other than still, still working, working at the, the summer, summer camp, camp when Sally or Matilda or Rachel asked her, Oh my God, it's been so long. How are you doing? What are you up to? So I'm fairly happy with my life right now. Sure, it could be better, you know, but, you know, compared to my past shit, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that things could be a whole lot worse. There's only so many times that you can say, I'm happy where I am for the time being, before you start to wonder if you actually are and how long you're going to still be. I mean, I am. 100%. Across sunny Camp Fletcher, Camp Director Benjamin Green was in his office at Camp HQ, quietly humming a horse with no name to himself and thinking about how grand life was and would continue to be, forever, when Camp Chef Lee found him and told him where exactly he could shove the job of Camp Chef and that she was quitting because there isn't a single person in the entire camp who truly recognizes all the hard work that I do. You'll all be sorry when I leave. And then she told him that one of his campers was missing. One of your campers is missing and probably dead. But that she had also given up caring because... Because nothing actually matters. No one, Stephanie Lee included, is clear on how much of this she actually meant and how much of it was just knee-jerk. She briefly thought about walking it back a bit, but then thought... <sighs> What's the point? And in the blink of an eye, everything was horrible for Camp Director Green, and had always been so. It was just that he had been mistaken when he thought things were good. Camp Director Benjamin Green knew he was mistaken because, that very morning, he had written down in what he called his thankfulness journal how thankful he was that, in his tenure as camp director, not a single camper had gone missing or died. This, quite horribly, places him in the definitive list of outliers with regard to previous Camp Fletcher camp direction, as close to all of the 38 previous directors of camp lost at least one camper during their terms in office. Bryce Wilmington, who was camp director for only part of the summer of 1938, leads the list with a whopping 201 campers missing, 196 of which were never found. Camp Director Wilmington, in his report on the incident, claimed that all 196 children had gone and joined the French Foreign Legion. And after all, who was he to question the call of civic duty? Each year since, on July 25th, Camp Fletcher celebrates Bryce Day, which, for many years, consisted of a day of quiet reflection on the sacrifice of brave souls or the idiocy of poor leaders, depending on where one stands on the is Bryce Wilmington a scumbag liar debate. Of late, however, as happens with most events that have meaning, the significance of Bryce Day has been forgotten. And it is now a day where campers write letters home, and after the campers go to bed, the staff imbibes heavily. It is generally understood, although at no point stated explicitly, for the most learning to take place, some campers will be lost. Children will only grow in an environment in which they are allowed to take true risks, writes Dr. Lester in The Science of Childhood, What Your Mother Did Wrong. And when they have the opportunity to deal with the consequences when aforementioned risks turn out badly. Camp Director Benjamin Green was a team player and believed in leadership's vision for Camp Fletcher. But he also really liked being an outlier. Things were clearly bad, although not bad enough for Camp Director Green to not pause and congratulate himself for not immediately jumping to action. A less experienced Camp Director might have immediately put together a search party with which to scour every inch of camp looking for Robin Thurgood's hopefully living body. 
But Camp Director Green was experienced, and told himself that, while things might be bad out there in the world, if there was one person up to the challenge, it was himself. He didn't completely believe this, but it was nonetheless nice to hear. Dr. Lester says to be patient and calm, and he's right, thought Camp Director Benjamin Green as he stared into Stephanie Lee's angry blue eyes. The right path will present itself. Gosh, she's beautiful when she's angry. The camp director considered this new bit of information and wondered if it meant anything, or if it was just another random, meaningless thought he should ignore. After he had recently become convinced that he was turning into a serial killer, his therapist, Felicia Goodman, had told him that sometimes thoughts don't actually have any meaning. While the camp director wasn't 100% convinced, he nevertheless appreciated the convenience of meaninglessness, as there were plenty of things in his life he would rather discard than examine. Of course, none of this helped him figure out how he was supposed to go about finding Robin Thurgood, or how he could convince Stephanie Lee that maybe she could just plan one more funeral, and then figure everything else out. He opened his mouth and said, Look, Steph, I... And then he realized that she wasn't in his office anymore, and that quite a bit of time had passed. Enough, he hoped, that he could finally start looking for Robin Thurgood without looking like he was making any rash decisions. And so he jumped into action. The issue was that he still wasn't entirely sure what the action being jumped into should be. Since its founding, Camp Fletcher has organized 854 search parties. Only 17 of those parties ever found what they were looking for, and only 6 of those 17 were looking for lost people. The other 11 were, according to the official Camp Fletcher search party logbook, looking for a good time. And so it seemed if forming a search party was the answer, Camp Director Benjamin Green really needed a new question. If I were Robin Thurgood, where would I be? The camp director hadn't meant to ask that question, let alone say it aloud to his empty office, because, when it came down to it, it was an inherently pointless thing to ask. If he was Robin Thurgood, he wouldn't be lost, because if he was Robin Thurgood, he wouldn't have wandered off to begin with. The camp director felt himself begin to climb down the proverbial rabbit hole in which questions like, what constitutes self, and who am I, are eagerly welcomed. Sorry he said, yet again wondering who in his otherwise empty office he was addressing, when Termite 862 crawled out from a hole in his desk and told Camp Director Green that he knew exactly where young Robin was, which was in a ravine five miles southwest of where they were. Termite 862 knew this because said ravine was where his alternate form was at that present moment. A lot has been written in the press recently about termites. Last month, the New York Times ran an op-ed by Dr. Lester entitled, how termites are ruining your son's chances at getting into Buckley School. And just last week, eight termites from a bookshelf colony in Cherry Hill were sentenced to seven years at Federal Correctional Institution, Terminal Island, for racketeering and mail fraud. And while the press has been exhaustive in the sense that it has used the actions of a few to make broad, sweeping declarations regarding an entire species of insect, it has largely neglected the why, specifically why termites are thought to be special, and therefore thought to be highly dangerous. As the termite community has roundly rejected the scientific method, there is no way, other than anecdote, to verify most of their claims. They claim, for example, that they are the only species of animal currently living that uses numbers rather than names to refer to each other. This has long been an issue for the Internal Revenue Service who, every year, contacts hundreds of thousands of termites to inform them that their filing is incomplete, as they seem to have filled in part of their social security number where their name is supposed to be. Bob Smith, Commissioner of Internal Revenue, has gone on record several times acknowledging that he is aware of and respects the termites' culture and traditions, and that were it up to him, the service would change the practice immediately. 
To the previous point, there is, of course, little reason to believe that their numbering system is made up. One can never be sure, as the termite community has successfully pulled off a number of species-wide scams, each of which, in one way or another, has had the aim of upping their mail fraud game. Another unique, unverifiable quality is that each individual termite's soul is present in two distinct locations simultaneously. This admittedly sounds wildly far-fetched, although there are several well-documented cases, most notoriously John Rich's Hell is Nigh, How Termites Ruined My Deck, and My Daughter's Chances of Getting into Middlebury. This is how Termite 862 led Camp Director Benjamin Green to a ravine five miles southwest of Camp Fletcher. The camp director went, not because he particularly believed Termite 862. Like many in America's multi-billion dollar child development industrial complex, he had had his own run-in with a termite from a support beam colony in a middle school in Silver Spring, Maryland. But because he believed that a lead, even one that turns out to be wrong, is better than nothing. But when it comes to a missing child, like Dr. Lester says, no stone will be left unattended. Wait, is that right? It turned out that Termite 862 had indeed been lying to the camp director and that there was no child quietly playing in the ravine or any of the ravines surrounding it. The camp director checked. As he walked back to his office, resolving to finally call the camp staff together to organize a search party, he also made a mental note to add buy new desk to the growing list of things he had to do, but was afraid of. He kicked himself for not figuring out the termite's plan all along, to get him out of his office long enough so they could eat lunch. Because that's another funny thing about termites. They are voracious eaters, but only when no one is looking, and will deny and deny that they even need to eat food claiming that they, as a species, have advanced beyond requiring sustenance, and instead derive power from the pure potential of the universe. Camp Director Benjamin Green had no idea what pure potential of the universe meant, but was pretty sure that if he were to ask the few termites wandering drunkenly around his demolished desk, he would be told to fuck off, and that he, as a human, was incapable of understanding. Which, the Camp Director guessed, was fair. You know, Dr. Lester claims that termites can't understand what love is, at the risk of sounding poetic, I'd take that over whatever that pure potential of the universe nonsense is. As sunset drew near, the members of the newly formed Search Party 855 began to come to terms with the aggravating fact that they were probably not going to get any sleep that night, and were instead likely going to spend eight hours stumbling through the dark woods, looking for a child whose existence all along Major Henry Warrington had begun to doubt. Which is pretty much exactly what happened except that around 2.45 a.m. half of the group broke off to smoke a bowl. Then they smoked another one. As morning drew near, Larry Wilson, whose pot it was that had been smoked, found himself down at the waterfront, staring out at the lake, sobbing, without any clear idea as to how he'd got there, or what it was he was so depressed about. After watching the way that the almost indiscernible branches of the trees above him swayed against the starry sky for half an hour, it made Larry feel good to know that depression was too simple a term for what he was feeling. It was, he decided, best described as elation for being alive on such a grand morning as this. Amen. But he was also keenly aware of the limitations of the English language. Eskimos have over 300 words for snow, said Larry Wilson. Larry began to speculate and think deeply on the nature of revelation and epiphany and to wonder why it was that staying up till daybreak seemed to be an inescapable prerequisite if you wanted to experience the true divine power of the universe, if you even believed in such a thing like that to begin with. 
And furthermore, he wondered, why, when most religions seem to rely so heavily upon groupthink, did he feel the most spiritual when he was by himself? Which is exactly when he realized that he wasn't actually alone. Futon the cat, who hated his name, purred. How's your night going? Larry asked. Futon shrugged. Eh, disappointing. I'm sorry, Larry said. It's okay, said Futon. It's my own damn fault for thinking it would be anything but. Futon had gone to see his favorite band, Byron Byron and the Melanomas, but the concert had been canceled three months previously due to lack of interest. And while Futon had been excited to rock out to a night of pop-punk anthems like Fuck Yeah, I'm Done For, the reason he was disappointed was because his friends had let him go. While none of them shared his passion for Byron Byron, a fact that became painfully obvious when each and every one of them turned him down when he suggested they come with, he was positive that at least one of them had seen the concert's cancellation announced somewhere. He then remembered that he had only opened up to his true friends about his general literacy, and none of them were physically capable of experiencing music. Then he thought about how wonderful and fleeting true friendship is, and about what he would do when Jacob, John, and Justin moved away. The exodus had already begun as, two days ago, John had accepted a personal assistant gig in Stony Point. Were you out there looking for that kid? Futon asked. Yeah. What do you know about it? Uh, just that it sounds like he wanted to get lost, said Futon, which is something you gotta kinda respect. Larry Wilson was weary of projecting his own personal biases onto the situation, but he had to agree. It was, after all, downright impressive in this age of internet narcissism to detach and go missing in a place with no internet or cell reception, and therefore no way to check on how your status of not being present is affecting everyone. And then Larry Wilson remembered that for all he knew, Robin Thurgood could actually be dead, and felt bad for not continually assuming the worst. Just FYI, said Futon the Cat, that whole 300 words for snow thing is made up. I mean, I'm pretty sure. It doesn't bother me, you know. I'm, I'm just giving you a heads up for future reference. As it does most of the time, morning eventually arrived, and Robin Thurgood, or Grumman as he was known to some, remained the only camper in the D.B. Cooper category on Dr. Lester's State of the Child chart. And although no one had given them permission to do so, everyone on camp staff had gone to grab a quick nap. The idea of pulling an all-nighter had seemed a whole lot more fun at 11.30 the previous evening. Now it just seemed like a mistake. Camp Director Benjamin Green was unable to sleep as he lay in the middle of the John Dewey Memorial sports field and stared up at the brightening sky. His brain had been on hyperdrive for the past 16 hours, but it hadn't actually gotten anywhere. Camp Director Green saw Robin Thurgood lying dead in the woods, his head busted open on a rock, and the Welcome to Camp Fletcher sign, with large letters stenciled over it reading, Closed due to negligence on the part of a man who wasn't good at his job and who nobody actually liked. Camp Director Green thought he was the only person awake. As it turns out, there was one other person who had not gone to sleep. Stephanie Lee had been up all night with the rest of the camp staff, and was now packing up her personal belongings, in order to make the 815 bus out of Slimsville. She had come to the conclusion that Robin was never going to be found. I mean, we searched everywhere, she thought. Stephanie Lee knew that it looked bad to leave the morning after. Given how poorly the whole affair had been handled, 
police, possibly even the FBI, would soon arrive, interested in deposing every last member of staff. Stephanie Lee was not afraid of this. Unlike most, she had nothing to hide. She was one of the few sane members of staff, and she wanted to stay sane, which meant making the 815 bus. As she walked up the parade field in front of the Taryn Miller Smith Memorial Dining Hall, she decided that she would try and miss Camp Fletcher. Maybe in a few years, she'd be able to look back and regret leaving. She wouldn't count on it, though. She had, after all, foregone a lot of life to be there. And as she climbed the steps, she remembered what she had told Camp Director Benjamin Green several hours ago. You deserve this. Because, because you are fucking, fucking incompetent. incompetent. And, and nobody, nobody likes you. You, you took, took a good, a good thing, thing and, and made it horrible. horrible. God damn it. Stephanie Lee stood by what she said. Maybe, she thought, she could have toned it down a little bit. And then she thought that the right thing to do would be to burn down the Terran Noah Smith Memorial Dining Hall. Fresh start. Amen. She opened the screen door and realized, much like Larry Wilson a few hours earlier, that she was not alone. The small form of an eight-year-old boy sat at one of the tables. He was trembling slightly, but otherwise seemed to be fine. He asked Stephanie Lee where everyone was. She said they were probably asleep, because it was pretty early. He asked if he could have some cereal because he was hungry, and she said sure, but that after he ate it, he should go back to his bunk. Robin nodded and said okay. She asked him where he had been. She wasn't worried, and she wasn't accusing him of anything. She was just curious. I don't know, he said. I was with the group, and then I... I don't know. And now I'm here. She asked him if he had been scared, and he said no. He said that Major Henry Warrington had told them that fear was a disease, and really only useful in debilitating one's enemies, that they should learn to control their fear. And if they couldn't control it, they should learn to ignore it, because that was pretty much the same thing anyway. Robin Thurgood told Stephanie that, in the time that he was away, the time that he couldn't really remember, he had made a promise to himself that he would never be afraid again. Ever. Stephanie Lee opened her mouth to mention that, in some cases, fear is a good thing. But she stopped herself. Now was not the time, this was not the place, and she was not the person. And anyway, what did she know about fear? High up in the rafters of the dining hall, Termite 712 watched and waited. She was excited because she would finally have something to tell the others. The revolution was coming after all, and even though she wasn't entirely clear who specifically it was they were revolting against, change was in the air. And in any case, she really just liked being part of a team. Bug Spray is written, directed, and produced by Scott Gooden. Featured in the cast are Angela Juarez as the camp chef, and Spencer Kennard is the camp director. With music composed by B. Norman Clature. Special thanks to Andrea Nor for using the scenic route to drive down to Virginia and in doing so, pretty much making this podcast happen in the first place. This is, of course, a work of fiction. Names, characters, businesses, places, events, and incidents are either the products of the author's imagination or used in a fictitious manner, or possibly both. Visit BugSprayPod.com for more information, and subscribe to BugSpray on iTunes, 